Hello, and welcome to the Doxology Podcast. I am Lucas Stock. And I'm Jens Nelson. This is a podcast dedicated to journeying together on the road that is the Christian faith. Join us as we discuss and investigate theology and the Christian life, striving for unity amongst our diversity as fellow members, co-members, brothers and sisters uh, within Christ's church. Today, on this second installment of the month of martyrs for May, we are going to be talking about a text, not a, not, or I should say, not just a person, but more specifically, um, a work of ancient literature that we have access to today that has been handed down that recounts the story of somebody's martyrdom. We're going to be talking about the text called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, which describes the event of the martyrdom of Polycarp. You know, seems straightforward to me. But um, we are, we have both read through this text ahead of time and kind of, you know, we, we know what it says and we've got some, some thoughts on it. We want to kind of give a little bit of background, kind of talk about the contents themselves, what the story is, what the narrative is, what, what we see going on in the actual text, and then um, kind of conclude with some, some lessons that we can draw today as, as believers living, you know, almost 2,000 years after this event occurred and after the writing of this account of it, um, reading it today and what we can learn from the example of Polycarp, um, as well as the the way that the the author chose to um, share that 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 story with us. So um, that's kind of our our uh, outline for where we're going today. I don't know, Jensen, if you have anything you want to to say by way of introduction, and and if not, we can kind of just jump right into it. No, yeah, let's just jump right in. Um, I mean, this I don't know if you'd call it a book, letter, whatever. This 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 ancient writing was written from the point of view of someone that was likely an eyewitness or at least was um, close to people who were eyewitnesses um, really for the most part recounting the arrest of an elderly polycarp um, recounting you know the the romans attempt to execute him and some perhaps subsequent miraculous events and uh, polycarp has actually come up a few times on our podcast especially recently um we we had an episode on was it Irenaeus right uh, Irenaeus Ignatius of, Ignatius that's right um, and Ignatius was a student of Polycarp who was a student of the disciple slash apostle John um, so that's that's who we're talking about we're talking about that same person so this 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 Polycarp or as I kept typing as I was doing this Polycrap I think it was just like how fast my <laughs> fingers were moving or whatever but um, this. Polycarp was a direct disciple of of John, so very close to Christ, very close to um, those early followers of Christ. And here we get an account of of how such a person passed from this life into the next. And I I, I had yeah. never read it before uh, up until literally two days ago, so I, I found it very fascinating, very interesting, and I'm excited to dive in. Yeah, it, it's a really fun an easy read i would say uh the i've mentioned this penguin classics edition of of early christian writings um that i have before and the martyrdom of polycarp is in here this is where the 
what I, the text I was using to prepare. Um, it's only like seven pages or something in this edition. Um, it's really not that long. It's um, available in readable English translations. It's it's quite um, accessible, which is really cool because it is such a fascinating story of a very fascinating figure in church history. Um, and it's also, I think, a really useful text in terms of uh, looking to the lives of those who have gone before, um, or in this case, the death of those who have gone before, um, and learning from them. Um, a little bit more background on the text itself. Um, there's been some disagreement uh, with amongst scholars over, over dating this text. Um, dates of AD 155, 156, 168, 177, and even as, as late as sometime around 250 have all been given. Um, in Eusebius of Caesarea's uh, big, gigantic church history, he says that this text was written in the, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, which was from 161 to 180. But it's that's kind of questionable if if he's accurate with that. It's it's not you know totally certain. Um, at the very end of the actual text of the Martyrdom of Polycarp, there is a date that is given for when. Polycarp was martyred, um, I believe. It might actually be the date that the text was written. Um, no, no, it was, it was the, the date given for when Polycarp died. Um, but what's kind of fun and interesting and, you know, makes it hard to actually know the exact date is there's, you know, kind of like Luke does in the beginning of the gospel when it's like, you know, such and such was the governor, so and so was Caesar, there was a uh, a census so you kind of get like a, a list of people and places to know when and where the story is taking place um the author does that here but when he gets to the end of the list when he when he would normally place the name of who the emperor was he says uh the ruling monarch was jesus christ uh which is totally metal and i love it um but it does make it a little more difficult to date <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, one of the most significant pieces of information is is missing. So um, that's a little bit on the background of the actual the actual book itself. Um, but I wanted to know sort of like I, I well, I guess before we get to that, we should probably just sort of like summarize briefly, maybe highlight a few quotes um, what the what the actual story of Polycarp's martyrdom is that we get in this text. Um, I don't know if you want to, you want to kick it off or kind of walk us through what happens. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it, it just, it, it almost seems like a, a letter that's being written. It's, it's recounting this story to other people because it, it begins by saying the church of God, which sojourns in Smyrna to the church of God, which sojourns in, uh, Philomelium, uh, and to the sojournings of the Holy Catholic Church in every place. Mercy, peace, and love of the uh, of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ be multiplied. Uh, so a very similar greeting to something that you would find, for example, in like a letter of Paul. You know, whether he was writing to a church or to an individual, it's, it's basically starting by, you know, the church of God which sojourns here to the church of God which sojourns there. And I, I found that word alone very fascinating, the fact that... Um, you know, the church of God, which sojourns in Smyrna and that idea of sojourning, maybe that's a, a word you've never heard, or it's, it's at least not used very frequently. Um, but I think it it's used to 
show and signify that, you know, this is this isn't our home necessarily. This isn't where we're meant to be all the time. Um, maybe this church was displaced from their original homeland, so they were actually physically sojourning somewhere. Um, but whatever it might be, these these people, as they were writing, are, are at least recognizing that these people are um, members of Christ, um, you know, part of the, the holy Catholic, the, the universal church in every place. Um, and they're basically praying that mercy, peace, and love would be multiplied to these people, which... Um, like I said, imitates a little bit of what Paul would say or any really any of the New Testament writers as they write letters. Um, but the, the rest of the story goes on to sort of recount. Um, it seemed like, you know, because this was my first reading and, you know, under trying to understand all that transpired, um, doesn't it first start with like two different martyrs, two, like two, uh, two different people who, uh, who had perished and before it moves into like Polycarp's official story? Yeah, it's really interesting, like the way that it, it it kind of seems like there's there was some sort of period of persecution going on at Smyrna already, because because it mentions a couple names of of people. And it sounds like even more than just them um, had, had already been arrested and sort of put before the crowd at the circus to be, you know, torn apart by wild beasts and, and, and all that kind of thing. So. Um, it kind of it seems to me to suggest that there's like this, this persecution is already happening. You know, it, it doesn't sort of start with Polycarp, but there's this already this this atmosphere of danger um, for the Christians at Smyrna as as it sort of like shares the details of of two, you know, I think it yeah I think it was two two specific um, uh, believers um, yeah. that, that that the author names. Yeah, and and after it explains that, it then dives in more deeply into the story of Polycarp, obviously, since that's what, you know, the martyrdom of Polycarp is the title, essentially. Um, and there, there were a few quotes to me that, like, stood out that is basically recounting what is going on. Um, and so one of the ones that I wanted to talk about and share was, uh, took place right after Polycarp was, I guess, more or less arrested, to use modern uh, parlance. But it says, quote, and the police captain Herod and his father Nikitas met him and removed him into their carriage and sat by his side, trying to persuade him and saying, but what harm is it to say Lord Caesar and to offer sacrifice and so forth and to be saved? But he at first did not answer them. But when they continued, he said, I am not going to do what you counsel me. And they gave up the attempt to persuade him and began to speak fiercely to him and turned him out in such a hurry that in getting down from the carriage, he scraped his shin and without turning round, as though he had suffered nothing, he walked up promptly and quickly and was taken to the arena, while the uproar in the arena was so great that no one could even be heard. Um, so again, this is sort of recounting him being brought into the place where he would be um, would be martyred. And, and something that I find really fascinating as we've you know done some study on martyrs, as we've talked about martyrdom, as we even sort of have like touched on martyrology, um, these stories are in a sense, like they're very heroic. Um, the, this, and, and I know this is something that we haven't talked about yet, and I'm curious if we'll bring it up here or in other places, but um, I, I know that there at least um, academically is some skepticism surrounding different martyrdom stories because at times they seem very fanciful. Um, they seem too good to be true. Uh, sometimes, you know, people s suggest and wonder if they were used almost as like, 
propaganda. And, you know, if you if you recall the quote that we shared last week about um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, like uh, basically these martyrdoms were incredibly inspiring. It, 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 it led to people confessing faith in Christ because it's like if these people are willing to go to such great lengths and, and even losing their lives, um, even being witnesses to Christ, like this must be something worth doing, someone worth following. Um, and so there, there's always speculation about these things is how, you know, how historically accurate they are. Um, but what I find really interesting about this is, again, just how heroic some of this seems, how how faithful Polycarp was even to the very end. And um, when we consider, I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult to even get into the same mindset as, you know, maybe what Polycarp would have been enduring. Um, but to, to be arrested, to be brought before the arena, to, to do all the things that he has gone through and to, to still cling to his faith, to not waver, to not, you know, renounce Christ, you know, it's, it's not difficult to wonder, like, what would I do in his situation? Um, but it, it goes on. One of the quotes goes on to say, therefore, when he was brought forward to the proconsul, um, he asked him, uh, if he were Polycarp. Um, sorry, let me, so let me start over. Therefore, when he was brought forward, the proconsul asked him if he were Polycarp, and when he admitted it, he tried to persuade him to deny, saying, respect your age, and so forth, uh, as they were accustomed to, sw- as they were accustomed to say, swear by the genius of Caesar, repent, say, away with the atheists. But Polycarp, with a stern countenance, looked on all the crowd of lawless heathen in the arena, and waving his hand at them, groaned and looked up to heaven and said, Away with the atheists. Uh, but when the proconsul pressed him and said, uh, Take the oath and I let you go, revile Christ, Polycarp said, For eighty and six years I have been his servant, his servant and, have done, and he has done me no wrong. How can I now blaspheme my king who saved me? Um, and I think that that's one of the the more popular quotes that is attributed to him. At least I've heard it in other places, not recognizing that this is sort of where it comes from. Um, but as he's standing, you know, before this, I don't know if you want to call it a judge or the person who's going to decide his fate or whatever, um, he's, you know, being pressed to renounce this faith that he has, to to revile Christ. And he basically says, I've been living 86 years. I've been Christ's servant. And he's done me no wrong. So how could I blaspheme him now in this moment? Um, so again, uh, this example, I think of, I keep thinking of the word, you know, heroic or um, noble or just almost incredible. But I'm kind of curious what, what you think about some of that. Yeah, that, that quote has always really stuck out to me ever since I, I first heard it, which I don't, I don't even remember if I first heard it from reading this or if I first heard it quoted somewhere else I think it is a fairly well-known quote and it is it is such a good picture I think to picture this this old man you know in the in the ancient Roman Empire like 86 is 86 is old now it 86 was old back then you know and he's he's staring down a really violent death in the face but but he doesn't he doesn't care in in the comparison to you know Paul Paul speaks about our in Romans I think it's eight our present afflictions being counted as nothing compared to the weight of our future glory or, or I forget how the actual verse goes but um, that's always really stuck out to me just that that very courageous faithfulness that Polycarp gives and I think that um, 
both, you know, his like turning to the crowd and calling them atheists, <laughs> um, as well as his his you know very. Uh, that is also pretty metal. Now that you mention it, like y- y- a it, second it ago, is. you said <laughs> he's like, it, you know what? Really this is. is what I'm gonna do. And, and and you know, it might sound a little confusing. Like it, so in the Roman Empire, Christians were called atheists because they atheoi, those without gods, because. Um, if you're denying all of the pagan gods because you're worshiping the one true God, you you don't have gods, right? Um, but um, it, it was common to to accuse Christians of atheism, and that and that was a bad thing because um, if you if you ignored the gods, then you wouldn't be able to appease them. They would be angry, and then the peace of the empire was threatened. So it was a really big deal. Um, like it, it it wasn't just an insult. It, it was all, it also had really important social implications um for the community for the society that 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 polycarp and those around him are living in at this time um and he kind of throws that back on the the people who are taking part in this which is um you know super awesome to like read about like you're saying this very heroic figure um but then also i think it just speaks volumes about what's going on sort of under the surface, you know, we've got these, the, the sort of the clash of these two worlds, the, you know, two kingdoms, you know, the, the Roman empire and, and the kingdom of God kind of, um, you know, meeting specifically in the life of this, this one man in the arena. But um, yeah, I mean, just really, really good stuff. And then here, here is where we kind of get into the actual martyrdom part. <laughs> um, he's tied to a stake they light it on fire, um, but the fire doesn't kill him. It, it, you know, is, is my understanding. It, it, it kind of like almost sounds like it forms this like circle around him, almost where he's kind of like in it. Um, there's this allusion to um, him being almost like uh, bread, like a loaf of bread in an oven, kind of. Um, uh, not like a human being in flames but like a loaf baking in the oven or like a gold or silver ingot being refined in the furnace. Um, so you get this, this very unexpected result of him being, you know, set on fire on a stake. But since he won't die, a soldier comes up and, and stabs him in order to kill him. And then it says that, a little graphic, I guess, but it says <laughs> that so much blood spilled out that it puts out the fire. <laughs> Um, Didn't it also say a dove came out, or did I misread yeah, that? Yeah, like, it, I... it does. <laughs> I um, was like, "What does that mean?" It's this very, it's this very, um, mira- like, like you, you said, it's this, it's right. this, which is characteristic of these martyr accounts. But it, it's this very miraculous sort of death. It, it's not just, you know, the faith that is miraculous that someone would be so faithful under such horrifying circumstances, but even the the actual execution itself kind of takes on this supernatural quality um and it, it it's what i think is really important and and this gets at sort of what the, a martyr story um, like you said martyrology what these stories are doing um beyond their historical accuracy the significance of them is is it, it even makes note that like the people there are filled with awe to see the greatness of the difference that separates unbelievers from the elect of God. So you have this, this textual, you know, that the narrator is making note of sort of what we could imagine 
would happen to all the spectators at the arena seeing something like this happen when they're expecting just to see somebody get eaten by animals or, or burnt at the stake, something they've seen probably hundreds of times before, you know, um, but something very different happens with Polycarp and it makes that, that impact. It's, it's, you know, presented as really being used by God in such a way as to be a witness, like we talked about last week with, with just the basic idea of what martyrdom really means. Um, and then um, it, it, the, the text kind of wraps up with, with uh, the, the faithful, they, they retrieve Polycarp's bones and they buried it at a, at a spot that um, they could come to for annual celebrations, remembering. Um, and and then it kind of ends with this, you know, instructions to, to sort of re- not just hold on to this this letter, but, but to spread it so that other churches can read it and know the story and be encouraged and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so that's sort of that's sort of the text itself, the story. Um, we, we've, we've hit a few, a few quotes, um, and, and that, that stuck out and where I think were important. Um, and then I kind of want to take this, you know, transition to, to sort of taking a look at what we can learn, what pieces, whether it's, whether it's certain quotes or just certain ideas that come out in this text that, that we can t- draw lessons from. Um, one of the things I want to point out, and then I'll hand it over to you is, um, there, right before he is um, lit on fire, um, Polycarp prays, and I want to just read this prayer. It's 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 about a paragraph. It's not too long, um, but it, this really stuck out to me um, when I was reading through it the other day. Um, he he prays, "O Lord God Almighty, Father of Thy blessed and beloved Son Jesus Christ, through whom we have been given knowledge of Thyself." Thou art the God of angels and powers, of the whole creation, and of all the generations of the righteous who live in thy sight. I bless thee for, the grant, for, for granting me this day and hour that I may be numbered amongst the martyrs, to share the cup of thine anointed, Jesus, and to rise again unto life everlasting, both in body and soul, in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received among them this day in thy presence, a sacrifice rich and acceptable, even as thou didst appoint and foreshow, and dost now bring it to pass, for thou art the God of truth, and in thee is no falsehood. For this and for all else besides, I praise thee, I bless thee, I glorify thee, through our eternal high priest in heaven, thy beloved Son, Jesus Christ, by whom and with whom be glory to thee and the Holy Ghost, now and for all ages to come. Amen. Um, and it's, I mean, the, there's the obvious, just like this continued faithfulness of Polycarp, Right. Um, where he's he's not backing down, he's not, you know, giving into fear, compromising his confession or anything. Um, but also, and and the 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 editor in my edition kind of makes note of this. This is a very Eucharistic prayer. Yeah. Um, th- there are certain parts that that are reminiscent even of the liturgy that that I hear every every Sunday from the Book of Common Prayer, um, and it. It, it seems what you know maybe perhaps he was you know as a bishop you know he was a he was a minister he would have probably he would have certainly been celebrating the Eucharist for you know I mean he was old for decades probably at this point um, and it it's very interesting that that is the the sort of language that gets gets used and you know I noted I noted before when when he's lit on fire there's this allusion to him being a loaf of, of bread baking. Um, that that's in the paragraph right after this prayer, so it almost seems like this this 
Eucharistic illusion kind of continues um, that the, that the author is 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 baking into the text here, um, which is which is super fascinating and and I think really important. You know, like he says, um, a sac. You know, he's describing himself as a sacrifice, um, which is exactly what's happening. <laughs> he's he is offering him his himself. You know, really fulfilling that Romans twelve command to be a living sacrifice. Um, through his own literal death. Um, and the other thing is is how Trinitarian this prayer is, which A, makes a lot of sense coming from, if it is influenced by the Eucharistic prayers of, of, of the church that he would have been praying. But also, keep in mind, this text is pre-Council of Nicaea, so the, the details of, of, of the, the Orthodox confession of the doctrine of the Trinity haven't been worked out yet. The language hasn't been standardized the Trinity exists and is worshipped. You know, Christians are Trinitarian at this point, but this is before those controversies that that focus on the on what it means to, to believe in the Trinity are really worked out. But you you hear this um, twice. You know, Father, Son, Jesus Christ, um, and uh, life in the immortality of the Holy Spirit. And then at the end, I bless Thee through Thy beloved Son. By whom and with whom be glory to thee and the Holy Ghost. You've got this this two times the Trinity is is mentioned and and um, I, I just feel like that's really significant too for kind of giving a just like an insight into the the faith that Polycarp is being faithful to. Um, there there's a lot for us to recognize, you know, like he he doesn't have a different faith than us, and and that comes out in his in his prayers or his prayer that we see here, um, just in terms even of the language that, that he uses um, and, and what that reveals about his doctrine and his, um, his, his you know, the nature that his worship uh, and by extension the worship of his church kind of took. Um, so that was, that was one of the things that stuck out to me the most um, that I think we can benefit from sort of meditating on a little bit. Um, a really, really beautiful prayer. Like, yeah like a really good prayer. <laughs> yeah, I almost contemplated using it as our closing prayer, but I'm glad I'm glad we shared it here. Yeah, yeah. I thought about it, but I I, I knew I was going to read it, so right. I was like, yeah, eh, we, we could, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm curious, dude. So, as I kind of mentioned, the and we already kind of touched on too, but the, the some of the miraculous things that seem to happen, so there's the dove, there's the fact that he's not engulfed by the flame. Um, one of the things we haven't mentioned yet that happened earlier was uh, when he entered the arena, so he, you know, he gets out of this carriage or whatever uh, is put before the people, and as he's entering, correct me if I'm wrong on the on the on the quote, but basically, he hears a voice from heaven or something say, "Be strong, be courageous, uh, Polycarp, and play the man." Um, and the narrator, whoever that is, uh, states that the other Christians present also heard this voice. So again, is this a is this a, you know? manifestation from heaven is this god speaking from the you know the clouds so to speak um is it a fanciful you know embellishment to this story just to make it that much more um impactful and engaging but i guess my question to you is like obviously we don't know the answers to what i'm what we're like what actually the voice was but but what i'm what i want you to maybe answer if you can is what do we make of some of these things that do seem to be maybe too fanciful or maybe a little too miraculous. Like how do we, how do we think about something that is 
most likely history, but also has a little bit of quote unquote fantasy, maybe. Like, how do we, what should we make of that? Because, you know, the, the person that is going to be very critical will read this and be like, well, a dove didn't fly out of a guy. There was no, in you know, <laughs> disembodied voice saying something to Polycarp. Like, so what, how do we, how do we address that? Maybe, maybe you don't have an answer, but I'm curious. No, it, it's funny that, that this is, first of all, a fantastic question. And I think it kind of gets at the heart of what I think we need to think about when we're reading texts like this today. Um, but also it ties in really well with the other sort of lesson I wanted to draw out. So so this is like, you know, a miraculously unplanned uh, sort of dovetailing of ideas that we have here. But um, so I think in the text, the implication is it is a voice from heaven from the father i think it's it's or or god at least um it, it's not stated who or what this voice is but um i i think it's it's fairly clear that the the implication is that god is is speaking this to to polycarp and the other christians hear it um as some sort of encouragement challenge charge that kind of thing right um and also in the text you have these miraculous elements that are stated unironically um, as if they they happened as much as him being arrested by Herod, the police captain or whatever, right? Um, there's no indication by the author that we're supposed to understand this voice as a metaphor or the fire not burning him as a metaphor or something like that, right? Um, and then I, th so I think like, to answer the question, like, what do we do with that? If we're reading this book that is supposed to be a history of Polycarp's death, and we come to these things that don't sound very historical, um, what we need to do is remember the part of the context of a text when we're interpreting it. Um, Chive has a lot to say, if you can hear him in the back. I don't know how, how much the mic's picking up, but... Um, Part of the context of a text that you want to interpret, whether it's a textbook in your history class, uh, the Bible, um, or anything in between, um, is the genre, right? So if you're reading Isaiah, you're going to need to interpret that book differently than if you're reading the Psalms or if you're reading one of Paul's letters, right? Um, the way that language is used, and not just language, but also that stories are written or texts are written, um, is shaped partially. One of the big factors is the genre. So when we say we're reading the martyrdom of Polycarp, something that I think is really important is we're not reading a historical narrative. We're not reading a, an epic poem like the Iliad or the Odyssey or something. We're reading a martyr's account. Um, I, I don't know if there's a you know less clunky way to say that, but the 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 stories of the martyrs. We touched on this a little bit last week. Um, Dr. Stefano Van Lang was really helpful here. Um, the 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 genre of a text like the Martyrdom of Polycarp is not just history. It's it's hagiography it's holy writing it's almost like a holy history and to kind of illustrate 
what I mean as it pertains to this text in particular, I want to just highlight a couple of things that kind of we can trace throughout the text, right? Um, so in right in the beginning, um, when it's he's like, we're going to write it, we're going to tell you about Polycarp's martyrdom. And then he says that, it was almost as though all the preceding events had been leading up to another divine manifestation of the martyrdom, capital M, which we read of in the gospel. So he's talking about Jesus's death here. For Polycarp, just like the Lord, had patiently awaited the hour of his betrayal, um, in token that we too, taking our pattern from him, might think of others before ourselves. Um, this is surely the sign of a true and steadfast love when a man is not bent on saving himself alone, but his brethren as well. Um, so right off the bat, Polycarp, this text is linking the story of Polycarp with the story of Christ. Um, and there are these parallels that run through um, the whole story that, that are focused on this connection between Polycarp and Jesus. So you have the voice from heaven, right? Think of Jesus' baptism. He, you know, it's a, different, it's a different statement from the voice, but a voice that other people around can hear but maybe don't quite understand what it is speaks to both Polycarp in this text and Jesus in the Gospels. Um, the dove is also kind of reminiscent of Jesus' baptism, which if we keep in mind, Jesus' baptism is the point where um, you know, he, he is beginning his public ministry and God is publicly proclaiming, you know, the father is publicly proclaiming over the son that you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. It, it's this public affirmation of, of who Jesus is as the one sent from from the father. Right. So we see this. We can see this linking with Jesus specifically through sort of connections with his baptism. But we also see Polycarp on the night he was betrayed. <laughs> praying you know he he beforehand he had a vision where he foresaw his death he knew he was going to die by burning at the stake we didn't mention this but he has this this vision where his pillow catches on fire and he tells his friends um this is the the kind of death i'm gonna have so you know just like jesus foresaw and foreknew what kind of death he was gonna have and alluded to it with his with his friends and disciples um when the, the people come to seize Polycarp, he asks for an hour to pray. And he ends up praying for two hours. <laughs> and everyone is like blown away at how, you know, unassuming and saintly this man is. The night Jesus is betrayed, he's in the garden praying. The place where the, the, the uh, authorities come to seize him. What he's doing there is praying, right? Um, we have the, the stabbing and the blood rushing out of Polycarp seems pretty on the nose as far as the piercing of Jesus's side. Um, so, so I think what's happening here with more than just the miraculous elements, but certainly th these miraculous things like the voice from heaven and the fire that doesn't burn and all that kind of stuff. What I think what's happening is just like we're kind of told from the beginning is the author is trying to draw a connection between Polycarp and his death and Jesus and his death. Um, and the point of that is, like he says, like I just read, in token that we too, taking our pattern from him, might think of others before ourselves. So there's this there's this this element of, of learning and teaching from these examples. But you might be wondering, that's a little like 
I don't know if I'm comfortable, you know, sort of making a really close parallel between the death of a saint, a martyr, and, you know, the the once-for-all sacrificial atoning death of Jesus Christ. Like, that seems like these are kind of two very different things, and maybe we, we don't want to make it sound like Polycarp's death is as important or as significant for us as Jesus's death. But I think that at the conclusion of this text, that that concern, I mean, I understand that concern, but I think it's kind of taken care of by the author himself because um, what he says is originally the authorities didn't want Polycarp's body to be released because they were afraid that um, the, the Christians in the area would start worshiping him just like they worshiped Jesus after he was killed. So there's another connection, but, um, uh, what, what the author says is little do they know that it could never be possible for us to abandon the Christ who died for the salvation of every soul that is to be saved in all the world, the sinless one dying for sinners or to worship any other. It is to him as the son of God that we give our adoration while to the martyrs, as disciples and imitators of the Lord, we give the love they have earned by their matchless devotion to their king and teacher. Pray God we too may come to share their company and their discipleship. So I think what's happening is that this text is doing something more significant and deeper than just telling us about Polycarp's death. If, if that's all it was doing, then I think the the miraculous pieces would it would make sense to maybe question them or maybe think that there might be some other explanations for what's going on or maybe there are some exaggerations used as metaphors i mean as christians you know we obviously know that god can and does do miracles like we see that all over the bible so it's not so much like for for from a christian perspective i don't think it's so much a problem with miracles existing so much as like do we really believe that God decided to do miracles like this with Polycarp specifically? Um, but even if we want to say, like, you know, I don't believe that these mir- these miraculous pieces of the story are, are historically accurate, um, That I, I don't think that matters. I'm not convinced that the author was, was trying to suggest that they were in the first place. I think he's teaching us something where you have Polycarp is set up in a way very similar to Christ, and he is faithful to Christ through all of these trials. You know, he, in, in a very real way, takes up his cross and follows Christ. You know, as Christ took up his cross and walked the road to Golgotha and was crucified and was faithful to the will of God, we are called to do the same. And Polycarp, as a teacher and an example of a true disciple of Christ, for us who are reading it, um, is reflecting that he, he, he's sort of a mirror image of what Jesus did for us to benefit from at, you know, him being our teacher in, in our, in, in our um, discipleship and, and commitment to Christ. So hopefully that kind of answers kind of what you're getting at. And it's kind of what I wanted to, the, the thing that I wanted to point out was what it means to be a martyr. It really is this identification with Christ, you know, through discipleship, and being a faithful witness all the way to the end, even to the point of following Jesus's footsteps to death itself. I mean, literally um, sharing in his sufferings. Exactly, exactly. Um, so I think that's what's happening in the text as a whole. 
um, which to me makes a makes makes sense of these um, miraculous things that might be a little, you know, doubtful to the more modern reader. Now, I'm not saying they can't be totally historically accurate. Right. They certainly right. can be. I wasn't there. Um, but I'm just saying I, I get the skepticism on the one hand, and even if we choose to say that it's it's unlikely that these events happened as they're written, I don't know that that's necessarily the point. The point. Right. You know? Yeah. No, that's a good answer. I like that. Cool. Well, I mean, if you have anything else, or I think that we're good to kind of wrap it here. Um, yeah. I thought it would be fitting, given given the uh, the Trinitarian prayer that that Polycarp prayed to uh, to pray one that is called the Trinity out of the Valley of Vision. So it says, three in one, one in three, God of my salvation, Heavenly Father, Blessed Son, Eternal Spirit, I adore Thee as one being, one essence, one God in three distinct persons, for bringing sinners to Thy knowledge and to know Thy kingdom. O Father, thou hast loved me and sent Jesus to redeem me. O Jesus, thou hast loved me and assumed my nature, shed thine own blood to wash away my sins, wrought righteousness to cover my unworthiness. O Holy Spirit, thou hast loved me and entered my heart, implanted there eternal life, uh, revealed to me the glories of Jesus. Three persons and one God, I bless and praise thee for love so unmerited, so unspeakable, so wondrous, so mighty to save the lost and to raise them to glory. O Father, I thank thee that that uh, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast given me to Jesus to be his sheep, jewel and portion. O Jesus, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast accepted, espoused, bound me. O Holy Spirit, I thank thee that in fullness of grace thou hast exhibited Jesus as my salvation and planted faith within me, subdued my stubborn heart, made me one with him forever. O Father, thou art enthroned in my prayers. O Jesus, thy hand is outstretched to take my petitions. O Holy Spirit, thou art willing to help my infirmities, uh, to show me my need, to supply words, to pray within me, to strengthen me that I faint not in supplication. In supplication, O triune God who commandeth the universe, thou hast commanded me to ask for those things that concern thy kingdom and my soul. Let me live and pray as one baptized into the threefold name forever. Amen. Amen, man. I I love the Trinity, right? <laughs> <laughs> um. So yeah. This, this wraps up today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to um, this newest installment of the Doxology Podcast and of Martyr Month of May. May, Martyr Month, I don't know. Um, but thank you. And if you'd like to connect with us, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Doxology Podcast. You can reach us at by email at doxologypodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear your feedback, questions, any future episode ideas, ideas for future themed months that we can do. Um, any and all of the above, we'd love to hear from you. And until next time, we'll see you.